this psalm. One thing we need to affirm is this is a psalm of David. Um, that's affirmed in the New Testament many times. Jesus himself, in Matthew 22, when he's asking questions back and forth with the crowd, quotes this psalm and says, David wrote this. If, if they say David wrote it, then we can't say rightly anything else. Nevertheless, people try. Uh, there are certain scholars who have a hard time with what this psalm says. It's prophecy about Christ who question whether David really wrote it. Is it really about Christ is what they're getting at. If David wrote it, it's about Christ. There's no question. So maybe someone else wrote it using David's name. Or maybe there's some who would say, uh, maybe David is writing on behalf of the nation. He's speaking in their place. When he says, my Lord, he's, he's really using that uh, term, that phrase, uh, not for himself, but for the nation as king. But those kinds of interpretations kind of twist things out of their natural reading. The second thing that strikes me about this psalm is, is put yourself in David's place. Receiving this psalm, writing it down. Incredible. It strikes me as very similar to, to the way John the Apostle must have reacted when he got those visions that are recorded in Revelation. Fantastic, wonderful, amazing things that, that David can kind of, sort of, maybe grasp, but doesn't really completely understand. Some ruler coming along who's greater than he is, who rules at God's right hand, like Melchizedek, that ancient king. David had to be somewhat overwhelmed, I think, awestruck by this psalm. The third thing I think we need to be clear about uh, is I just don't see how we can interpret this any other way than being a psalm about Jesus Christ and about him only. It's not about David. A lot of the Messianic psalms, you'll see, you have to kind of filter out what is it, what's about David, What's about Christ? What's about Solomon? What's about Christ? What's about the promised future son of David? Uh, What's about Christ as Messiah? Here, and this is a, I'm not saying anything new. (laughs) This is a consensus view among biblical commentators. This is a psalm about Christ. The Lord who is greater than any human king and has the unique privilege of co-ruling with God at the right hand of the Father. The only person in all of history that this psalm makes sense about is Jesus Christ. Those things give you a kind of some insight into why this psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Um, I won't give you the references. You can look them up uh, yourself. But either by direct quote or by allusion to it, phrases used or ideas used, uh, this psalm, more than any other psalm, is quoted by the New Testament writers. Hebrews especially, and Lord willing, we're going to get to Hebrews in a few weeks. Hebrews especially takes this idea of him being a king after the order of Melchizedek, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and and comments on it for several chapters vitally important for understanding who Jesus is. So this psalm that was so important to Christ himself and to the apostles is before us this morning. We'll start with verse 1. 
And this is where God himself establishes his son, Jesus Christ, as king and as ruler of everything. God's choice, if you will, to lead the nations, including this one. David shows this as a word from God, a declaration, an oracle. And the Lord who speaks, you might see it in the text of your Bible, it's the small capitals, the Lord says. This is the covenant Lord. This is Yahweh, the truly unpronounceable name of God that we approximate with Yahweh. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant Lord who rescued his people from Egypt and led them through the wilderness and established his covenant with them. I will be your God. You will be my people. This Lord is the Lord who is speaking. There's no question about that. The interesting thing is, who does he speak to? The Lord says, to my Lord. David's Lord. Just a simple word for a ruler or a leader. And David calling him my Lord is is key to understanding who this Lord is. It has to be someone who's greater than David. And think about that. David is God's chosen vessel, his chosen under-shepherd to rule the people of Israel. There's no king on the face of the earth who has a greater position before God than David. No matter how big their kingdom is, no matter how powerful it is, no matter how wealthy it is, no matter how much territory they have, there's no king greater than David because David rules God's people. That matters. So this Lord is greater than any king, greater than David himself. The New Testament answers this for us. and answers it clearly. This Lord is Jesus Christ. It's there in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. It's, it's in Acts 5. It's in Jesus interacting with the crowd in Matthew 22. It's, it's there in Scripture over and over and over again. So what does the Father say to the Son? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Interesting things going on in that statement. First of all, I think what's interesting is the son sits. He's at rest. It's a picture of his work being accomplished. Think of Philippians 2, where Christ has come. He's uh, made himself man. He's been obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And what does the Lord do in response? He raises him up to be with him. His work is accomplished. His work is done. And now the father's going to go to work. The father's going to go to work to make the son's enemies his footstool. So the son is sitting, resting, work, for now at least, accomplished. The other thing is that the son is at the father's right hand. And what that means is he's the co-ruler The right hand rules with the king's own authority. We've seen that in popular fiction and popular TV show these days. The hand of the king. The hand of the king makes laws in the king's name. So this means that Jesus rules with the Father and with the Father's authority. And if it's God, the Father's authority, it's absolute. It's total, unchallenged. There's no contenders. Now, there are rebels, but there are no contenders. 
The son sits at the father's right hand for a period of time until his enemies are made his footstool by the father. It implies a time of continued rebellion of those enemies, but that those enemies will ultimately be defeated. You know, maybe watching the, the, the conquest of, of Iraq in the Iraq war, that when Saddam Hussein was defeated, we saw it with Gaddafi, we see it with other rulers, they tear down the statues, and what do they do with their, their shoes? Pound the statue with their shoes or step on it. Because to be under someone's feet is an insult, the place of dishonor. That's where God the Father is going to put the enemies of Christ. There's a time coming when that process is going to come to an end and the rebellion is ended and the rule is completed, consummated. And the classic way that the church has understood this image is that Christ is waiting, ruling with God at the Father's right hand until that day when he comes again, as we confessed, with glory to judge both the living and the dead. We confessed also that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. This psalm is important for understanding who Jesus is and what he's doing. Even the church recognized it and put it into the creed. We get some insight as well into the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. You do this, I'll do that. Here's what the Father is doing for the Son. I am going to make your enemies your footstool. So Christ rules. He is the King. He is the chosen King by the Father to rule the nations. How does he do that? We're not told completely, but we're giving some, some kind of interesting clues in verses 2 and 3. His enemies are in rebellion... And it says in verse 2 that he rules in the midst of his enemies. That's an interesting picture. And in verse 3, he rules through the service of his people. He rules in the midst of his enemies through the service of his people. So a hallmark of Christ's rule until the last day, till that final judgment when his rule is consummated, is that he rules in the midst of his enemies. It kind of means the enemies are going to be there till the end. Surrounding, in some sense, the sun. What's interesting to me about this kind of rule is that it's not so much a conquering or taking territory like we normally think of the way nations jockey for power and position. It's going into enemy territory. It's subversive. It's counter-revolutionary, if you will. It's an insurrection. And the agents of that insurrection are his people. He's going into enemy territory. He's sent from Zion. And his people go as his agents. You and me, that's us. They offer themselves freely in his service, it says in verse 3. In holy garments given to them. So we're an army, but we don't wear army uniforms. (laughs) We wear garments of holiness. And that implies a spiritual quality to this insurrection, the rule of the Son in the midst of his enemies. 
And I think what this can tell us is that our obedience to God, our obedience to Christ, our obedience to his holy laws, his rules for our lives, is how the Son primarily rules in the midst of his enemies. So think about that. We know from Scripture, Acts 5 is where the apostles say we must obey God rather than men. Think about how revolutionary that is in the context of human behavior and human history. Mankind can choose its rulers. We go through that process every four years in this country. Or men can conquer one another and impose themselves as rulers on others. They can make laws. They can enforce them. But our refusal to submit to anything that isn't consistent with God's law not only makes us revolutionaries against the kingdoms of men, but also plants the Son's rule in the midst of his enemies. So as consequential as we might think this election is, it's really not so much about how we vote, but how we live. Do we follow Christ? Do we follow his law? Do we walk in the light rather than in darkness, in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called? Do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Have we taken our thoughts captive to Christ? Do we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him? Now, I'm not here to discourage political involvement or political action. I admit, I'm a political junkie myself. And being involved is our right as citizens, and I think even our duty. It's a privilege. It's a gift given to us by God. But how we vote is not the evidence of Christ's rule in this nation. How we act is clothed in holy garments, agents of insurrection in the kingdoms of men, witnessing to the beauty of God's law and his work in our lives. The real evidence of Christ's rule is in us and in how we live, not whether or not there's a Christian in the White House. My thoughts from verses 2 and 3. I think this, if I can put it this way, more spiritualized view of of Christ's rule is bolstered a bit by verse 4. Another decree, another oracle of God spoken to the Son. This time it's, it's emphasized that the Lord has sworn this thing. It's an oath that the Lord God, the Father in heaven, is making. And he will not change his mind. And he will not because he cannot change his mind. He declares to the Son the second thing. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, we'll learn more about this, God willing, when we get into Hebrews in depth which says a lot about this verse and this decree. But just a brief reminder, Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And when Abraham went out with uh, friends, with an army to rescue Lot and defeated them, he was returning, stopped to visit Melchizedek in Salem, gave him a a tithe of one-tenth of the spoils, and received a blessing from Melchizedek, who is described in Genesis 14 as a priest of the Most High God. Hebrews Hebrews brings out the uniqueness of this king and his rule. 
both as the king of Salem, a word which means peace, and as the, the king of righteousness, which is what his name means, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Melchizedek is a king and a priest, and that's what Jesus is. So whatever his rule is, it has to contain these two critical elements, spiritual elements. Peace and righteousness. Think about some simple things related to peace and righteousness. As the king of peace, he brings peace, first of all, between God and man, accomplished in that finished work that the Father has accepted, so that now he does sit at the right hand of power. This Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, did so to make peace for his people with their God. And that peace is ours through repentance and faith in him. He makes peace with God, but he also makes peace among men. All of us who are one body in Christ, and there is therefore now no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You meet a Christian, you've met a brother, a sister, no matter where you are in the world. That's, that's me, and I'm them. We have a greater bond than any other bond that exists on the face of the earth. So he brings peace, but he's also the king of righteousness, because he is righteous, but he also brings righteousness. That sweet exchange that we get in justification by grace and through faith, our sin traded for his righteousness. Righteousness in the continuing work of sanctification, that powerful work of the Holy Spirit that molds us more and more into the image of Christ, teaching us the law and obedience to it. The final work of glorification, where we are made perfectly righteousness and clothed in that righteousness and freed finally and completely and permanently from the power of sin, made perfect for all eternity. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus brings peace and he brings righteousness. He is a greater king. That's a rule that I'm not just willing, but eager to live under. Well, that brings us to the judgment in verses 5 to 7. Christ also rules in judgment. At the right hand of God, he will come to shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He's going to execute judgment among the nations. A, a powerful, terrible description, filling the nations with corpses, shattering chiefs over the whole wide earth. Tough verses to translate from Hebrew, but I think that's as good a picture as any. This is, I think, looking forward to that second coming of Christ. When that great day comes, Christ is going to judge the nations. It'll be a terrible day for his enemies. Corpses, chiefs and kings shattered. But for him, it's a picture of rest and refreshment again. Drinking from a brook, lifting up of the head. The work is done. The work is over. No more rebellion. No more enemies. (laughs) This is the vision that David was given of the coming Messiah, this prophecy of Jesus Christ. Much of the psalm fulfilled, one of the reasons I think it's so often quoted in the New Testament, 
but a part that remains to be fulfilled. His enemies are not yet his footstool, but that day is coming. David got this psalm as a word from the Lord by the power of the Spirit, says Christ. But its fulfillment was a thousand years in the future. Think about that. A thousand years. He had to wait. Israel, to whom this psalm was given and maintained, had to wait a thousand years for its fulfillment to take place. We see part of the fulfillment, but we also wait. We long for that day when Christ's enemies are made his footstool, utterly defeated. We look forward to the judgment that they receive, the due judgment that they have earned for their hardened rebellion against the true ruler of the nations. So what do we do while we wait? A couple things to think about. First, celebrate. Give praise. This is a psalm about Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, our God, our King. We can rejoice, we can give thanks, we can give praise because of what this psalm tells us about Jesus, and it's powerful. Look up all the references in the New Testament and read them, and you'll be astounded at what the Spirit derives for the church from this psalm. So give praise, also be patient. It's not easy to do. God has work that He's doing. The Son is waiting at the Father's right hand. If He can wait, how can we not wait and be patient as well? A third thing we can do, consistent with verse 3, is to offer ourselves freely to the service of the Lord. Serve His kingdom with gladness. Learn His word. Obey His word. Be agents of that insurrection in the midst of His enemies subverting the world, subverting its ways by the powerful good news of the gospel and our witness of it in Christ Jesus. Let that word impact you and let it spread from you to impact others. I think our obedience and our witness do more to advance the kingdom of Christ than any political action we can take, and by far. And if you haven't repented and believe, (laughs) do it now. Because you can either be a shattered corpse or a servant clothed in holy garments. You can either be an enemy of the Son who rules at God's right hand or receive peace and righteousness from the King of peace and righteousness. Again, who, who is God's choice to lead the nation? All the nations, certainly it's no mere politician. Again, remember Psalm 72. You want a king. You know you do. Who's God's choice for that king? His own son. The Lord of glory, our Savior, our King, Christ Jesus himself. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we do look forward to the day when Christ's reign is consummated. We thank you for the psalm and and what it reveals to us. And we pray that you would reveal even more about that kingship and that kingdom as we continue to study your word. For we know there is much more in your word on this wonderful topic. Help us to learn it, to understand it, and to apply it 
in our lives. In the meantime, give us patience to wait for that day and make us faithful witnesses. We do ask as well that you would give us wisdom uh, for our country, for the things that we can do as citizens to be good citizens and to serve, to hopefully vote with wisdom and, and to take proper action when needed. Um, but most of all, uh, may we be witnesses clothed in holy garments uh, of your rule through Christ our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.